Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. My guest back by the woodpile today is Bill Lyric. Now, this man has worn many hats over the years in the media industry, but what I wanted to ask him about was his days in radio, both mainstream and Christian. He shares some of his more memorable experiences with us, including those touching on Joe Walsh, Rich Mullins, Tim McGraw, Danny Gokey, and a few really tall basketball players. And when you I actually was in radio for 28 years, and I did eight years of mainstream and then 20 years of Christian radio. The first time I ever heard of Christian music, per se, was probably the late 70s. I grew up right outside of Philadelphia, Bucks County, you know, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania area, suburbs, you know, Philadelphia. And I remember a, a, a some kids in my youth group. I went to a Baptist church. My dad was deacon and all that stuff. And I remember a kid in my youth group trying to get me to join the Columbia House Music Club, right? With cassettes or you know albums, but cassettes, you know, were the cool thing because that was newer. Uh-huh. And uh, he's like, "You need to listen to." Like um, second chapter of Axe and Phil Keggy and and Randy Stonehill. There's so many great groups that are an alternative to what you're listening to right now. And I want nothing to do with that, of course. I joined Columbia House Music Club and bought rock and roll. All right. <laughs> Having said what you just said, why did you want nothing to do with that? I mean, because was there like a bad reputation, or did you think it was going to be hymns? Oh or? no, I, I just partied, man. Okay. I, I was I was the rebel child, okay. you know, the prodigal, whatever you want to call me. I mean. Yeah, I think I drank my first drink of alcohol was like Jack Daniels on my 16th birthday, and, I, and uh, well, I've, I've upgraded since then. Right, <laughs> I'm not the hugest fan of Jack right now, even though I live in Tennessee. But uh, if I have to, I will. Right, but uh, but yeah, I just wanted to party, man, and I I didn't ha- I didn't want anything to do with Christian music for a long time. You know, I got married, I saw the country. You know, I worked at different places. Had some kids, and uh, in 1996, um, uh, my dad passed away unexpectedly, and I was 32, and I'm super young now still. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but that was, uh, what, 20, uh, 20 plus years ago now. He passed away unexpectedly, and uh, I mean, I had been all over the place. I, w- I was kind of mad at God. I had been back in Pennsylvania for about six months, and we didn't... We'd stayed with them for a little bit, and I had three young kids, you know, under the age of five, and and I had been everywhere else but there for the for the ten previous ten years previous to that, and so I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna get back, hang with my pops, you know, we're gonna go to Phillies and Eagles games together and stuff, and do life together, you uh-huh. know, and then he. He passed away, you know, like unexpectedly, he had a heart attack and passed away. Now I'm today. I'm like thankful that he didn't have cancer or anything, you know. And I was spared all that angst, but but uh, I was really I was really pissed at God. Uh-huh. I was like, what the crap? You know, what are you doing here? I've just right. been away all these years, and I was working there in Central PA. 
I was not in the radio industry at that time. I still DJed. I did some other things. I uh, once a DJ, always a DJ. Sure. You know, um, I started listening to this Christian station in Central Pennsylvania, and it was right around the same time that Rich Mullins had died. Uh-huh. So my my dad died in December of 1996, and I think Rich passed away not long after that or right previous to that. I'm not sure which one. Mm-hmm. I think it was right after that. I think Rich died in 97. I was scanning the dial, you know, new to the area, listening to the music, and popped on this Christian station one day, and they were talking about this guy, Rich Mullins, and they were playing all of his music. And I'm like, this guy's pretty good. Mm-hmm. You know, I can relate to this kind of music. Um, it kind of reminded me of, I don't know, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, or or James Taylor, you know, or just something that I was familiar with from the mainstream. And I'm like, this is, this is okay. All those fortunes I hoarded They were the wealth from which my poverty spread Oh, they led me to no greater glory And they left me with no less shame And I wasn't working radio at the time, you know, so I kept listening and I got some Rich Mullen CDs you know, and eventually, eventually, I got the courage to go uh, buy that radio station. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a voice talent. I'm a radio guy, and um, you know, I had worked in radio. I was in a crap job. It wasn't it was good money, but it was crap. I was like, man, am I really supposed to be doing this? Right. You know. So I had the I got the courage to go by the station. And I started volunteering. You know, right away. I mean, right away they gave me a part time gig. I knew nothing about Christian music. Wow. Nothing. I didn't know its history. I didn't know anything about it. And they hooked me up. This guy, Larry Weidman, uh, from WGRC in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, hooked me up and was like, come on in, you know, you give it a shot. You know, we got room for you. And, you know, within a year, I was uh, working afternoons there. Wow. You know, full time and production guy, production director. And I had been a program director at some country stations and in top 40 stations, you know, different locations. And so I'm like, well, it's, you know, it's Christian music things new. And, and my dad had passed away and I kind of, kind of got back with God, you know, kind of got back to my roots and started living life a little bit better. Right. So before you got into the Christian music, you said you worked in all kinds of media. Yeah. Basically. Uh, secular media. Yeah. Uh, what are some of your better memories or wildest memories? Oh, man. First thing that comes to mind was I went to broadcasting school in 1989 in Minneapolis. And, and it was the first year of NBA basketball in Minneapolis. They had an expansion team. There was two teams that year. The Minnesota Timberwolves, and I can't remember the other one. But it was the first year of the Timberwolves. And I'm broad, I'm in broadcasting school, and I'm interning at a station in the suburbs of Minneapolis at an AM station called Kano, K-A-N-O. And I was a news-slash-sports intern. And that's not what I wanted to do, but I like sports. I mean, I grew up with the Eagles and Phillies, and so I'm like, this is cool. I can learn how to write copy and blah, blah, blah. But the best thing about that job was, even though I was an intern, I got a media pass anytime I wanted it to Timberwolves games. So here I am, 25 years old, sitting courtside at Timberwolves games, 
pre-game buffet, post-game buffet. Wow. I mean, I love basketball, you know. The Sixers had been to the finals in 1980, and here I am four years later, five years later, you know, sitting courtside. And post-game, I would hang around as long as I could, man, because I'm just a hang, you know, like, I want to experience as much as I can. I got a couple rules in life, and one of them is like, I have three rules in life that I kind of live my life by, and one of them is, Act like you know where you're going, that you belong there. <laughs> yeah. And that, that'll get you a lot of places. Yeah. And it got me a lot of places. And I remember riding in the elevator with some of the players from the team post-game after they'd showered and gotten cleaned up. I was going down to the parking level or whatever to walk out the back way to where I'd parked my car. And I remember being in the elevator with a guy named Brad Lowhouse, who was like seven feet something tall he's a freaking giant right. and then i uh, got a guard Pooh richardson and a, another guy named sydney Lowe, who was a guard i'm in the elevator with these guys and i'm like holy crap the smallest guy on the team <laughs> is jacked and four inches taller than me and these are elite athletes they're like on an expansion team did they treat you pretty well? I just said, hey, you yeah. know, and talked to them. And I, you would run into players occasionally, and they'd say, hey, and or they'd look at you, look at your, you know, your lanyard or whatever, and they'd be, just walk on by or whatever. Right. Nobody was uncool. Yeah. I mean, nobody, nobody was unfriendly. I don't know if it's, it's might be a little bit different today, and, you mm-hmm. know, this day and age than it was in the late 80s. I don't know. Mm-hmm. The NBA's grown so much, you sure. know, that it might be a little bit different today. It might not be that easy to do what I did then. Right. Okay. Second story was at my first job, we did a promotion with the Minnesota Lottery. Okay. And this was before Powerball and uh-huh. Mega Millions and all that. And so the Minnesota State Lottery, Minnesota Lottery, had scratch-offs. God knows why, but they sent hundreds of them to the radio station I worked at, an AMFM combo in northern Minnesota, to what? give away to listeners. Actual scratch-offs. Oh, okay. We had them in our desk <laughs> drawer. So what was to keep you all from scratching them yourselves? Well, that's the whole point. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> God, I bet I gave away 10% of those tickets, uh-huh. maybe. Right. And we didn't, I don't remember if we had to log them or anything, yeah. but... The Minnesota Lottery contributed to my income that year without even knowing it. Right. (laughs) My third favorite radio story of all time, which, ironically enough, I worked in Elizabethtown, Kentucky at an AC station. Christy 98 FM, whatever. E-Town, as we said. E-Town, E-Town, Radcliffe. I was in Fort Knox in the Army for about four years, too, in Uh between. I did public affairs work, Uh so in between radio gigs. And I was stationed in Fort Knox, so I worked part-time. At a bunch of stations in Kentucky. Hodgenville, Radcliffe, Elizabethtown. But I'm working at Quixie 98, the overnight shift, okay? To earn extra money. I got babies at home, you know. I'm moonlighting on the weekend. I'm working Friday, you know, 11 to 6 a.m. or midnight to 6 a.m. or whatever it was. 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. I don't know. Two nights a weekend. I'm doing overnights. It's an AC station. I'm falling asleep, you know. The playlist is is there, you know, we had, I don't remember if we had CDs or we had reels. I think it was a mixture carts, you know. I snuck in a Madonna song that was upbeat. Uh It was a hot AC station. I I don't know what Madonna song it was, but the thing I remember was, I'm like, yeah, I'm jamming out to this song. It's like 2 something a.m., 3 a.m. I'm like, yeah. And the phone rings. 
And it wasn't the request line, it was the studio line, or, or you know, the station line. Right. And this is before cell phones, you know. Uh-huh. So you answer it, you know. It's the freaking program director. Listening to you in the middle of the night? I don't know. Like, apparently, <laughs> she had some kind of sensor by her bedside or something <laughs> when somebody deviated from the playlist. Wow. And she's like, literally, hey, you're doing a great job, but why are you playing that Madonna song? It's not on our playlist. I'm like, um, okay, thanks, you know, for letting me know. Um, I'm sorry. She's like, don't do that again. I'm like, okay, I won't. And she hung up, and I'm like, Holy crap, this woman is listening. Right. Then, I, you know, later on, I'm thinking, oh, she's probably just got off from the bar or something, you know, yeah. and heard it randomly. Right. But she felt the urge to call me and, and chew me out a part-time overnight dude. So that actually taught me a lot because um, I didn't want to be that kind of boss. There was another time I was working in, uh, just starting out. I worked afternoons on the AM, AC. A lot of times I would work mornings, too, on the FM country. Ended up with a, um, a morning combo, so I did that for a while. I worked with Dean Jackson, and he came up with a moniker f- for us based on the Broadway play. Because my air name, my on-air name was Bill King. And uh, he came up with The King and I. Uh, as the the morning show duo, All right? And uh, you know, this is the heyday of country music. You know, it's double shot Tuesday. Here's a double shot of Tanya Tucker, TNT coming at you. you know? And man. Uh, man, we were just rocking and rolling. We were having a good old time as the morning show. We've got prep services. You know, we got you know we planned our breaks and stuff, but not crazily, crazily planned it out. We flew. You know, we just it was natural. We were good together. It was like the joke of the day segment or something. And I just, it was, hey, it's your turn, man. Uh So I told a joke. I said, hey, Dean, did you hear about the cannibals who (laughs) sold ashes to the funeral director? He's like, no, I didn't. He's like, yeah, they called them instant people or something. (laughs) It was some really bad joke. And I told it. And we were just cutting up laughing. Uh We we hit the post and hit the spot to go to the spot break. Uh And the very first, the spot. What do you think the spot was? Stevenson and Son's funeral home is some funeral home that had bought advertising on the station, you know, was the very first spot out of that joke. The phone rang. It's the GM. What the crap are you guys doing? They're one of our biggest sponsors. They all gather around my TV. Let it not trying to catch a peek at me and nothing but my buffalo breeze. I got him standing in line. Well, I remember meeting Tim McGraw when Indian Outlaw was a single, the very first single. And um, I can say now, I mean, like, young kid. I mean, nice nice kid. He, he actually lives here where I live, you know. Yeah. And uh, I was telling you off recording, I used to landscape yeah. near Leaper's Fork. Yeah. Right across the road from where I landscape was a, some property that apparently. Hank Williams Sr. Yeah. had owned, and so he and Faith owned it yeah. then. So Tim, Tim was just a great dad, but he chewed, he chewed tobacco then. Mm-hmm. And uh, go, he spit, and he did a station visit. It was cool and all, but afterwards I had to clean up you know, Tim McGraw's <laughs> spit cup. <laughs> you should have sold it on eBay. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 yeah, so, uh, I mean, I did run into Joe Walsh one time um, in Florida at a restaurant in, um, on the, on the uh, east coast of Florida. Joe... Uh, Came in and sat down. My ex-wife and I were in a booth, and um, 
Joe came in with, um, I don't know if it was his girlfriend, his wife, whatever, after we had sat down. I saw him walk in, and I think I said, I think that's, I said to my ex, I said, I think that's Joe Walsh. She said, who? And I said, you know, the guy from the Eagles. And she said, a football player? Because I'm a big Eagles football player. <laughs> I said, no, the band. She said, oh, really? I said, yeah, he's, he's like the guitar player. He's really famous. He's a really good guitar player. <laughs> so he sat down. Like, I was in the booth, and then his girl was, like, to my back, you know, and then he was over there, you know, like, on the other side. So my wife could see him, my ex-wife could see him, but I couldn't see him. You know, because I'm not going to turn around. That's the other thing. That goes back to my other rule. Like, right. like act like you know where you're going, that you belong there. Mm-hmm. You don't fanboy. You mm-hmm. don't, like, freak out. You know? Sure. Oh, my gosh, can I have my picture with you? <laughs> you know, that's a good rule, kids. Don't do that. Because right. you'll get a lot further. You know, they might initiate conversation with you instead of you initiating right. with them. If you act like you know where you're going, that you belong there, they'll say, hey, what are you doing here? Mm-hmm. And you can you can tell them what you want to tell them. Right. Instead of, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. So Joe Walsh sits down. I had ordered off the menu. This is one of my favorite restaurants. It's right on the beach, uh, north of Daytona. Snack Jacks at High Tides, Flagler Beach, Florida. Best place. They have a Facebook page. Go check it out. You'll see what I'm talking about. <laughs> Literally on the ocean, on the beach. Which Hasn't town? been wiped out by a hurricane. I don't know how. Which town? Flagler Beach. Flagler Beach, okay. Yeah. Um, so I'm there, and... Um, Joe Walsh is sitting behind me, and I'm freaking out inside because it's the Eagles, yeah. man. Yeah. I don't know what year this was. It was early 2000s, and there's this might have been before the Hell Freezes Over album. I don't know, right around that time. Mm-hmm. And I had ordered off the menu. It was linguine with shrimp. It was a type of scampi. They made it for me in the kitchen. It was freaking amazing. I hear Joe Walsh, the waitress comes over, how are you guys doing? And, I blah, blah, and he starts talking, and I know it's Joe Walsh immediately. Uh-huh. He says, I'll have what that guy has. It looks really good. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. Joe Walsh is eating the same thing I am. <laughs> you know? yeah. So they bring it out, and um, you know, we were towards the end of our meal. So we got up to leave. I turned around, and I said, hey, that was really good, wasn't it? And he's like, oh, yeah, man, I saw you had that, and, and I wanted to get it, too, and it just looked so good. The girl who was with him, I leaned down to the girl who was with him, and I touched, you know, I kind of grabbed her arm or touched her arm, I said, you know, he looks just like Joe Walsh. <laughs> and he just was, you know, sitting there, and she grabbed my wrist, uh-huh. and she said, please don't say that. Well, it's because they're out to eat, you know, right. and they're like, they want to be unrecognized, sure. you know? It's a little... Surf shack, you know, uh-huh. on the ocean. She didn't want anybody to hear me say that. Yeah. You know, because it was Joe Walsh. Right. You know? <laughs> and I didn't say, oh, hey, nice to meet you, Mr. Walsh. Yeah. I just I just got, I just, you know, I said, man, have a great evening. Yeah. You know, uh, enjoy yourself. And they were like, yeah, thanks so much. And I, yeah. and I, I left. You know, I'm walking out and I, I did stop the va- valet parking there, which is kind of weird, but they do. Um, so they can play these surfer dudes' money, I guess. Uh-huh. Um, and I said to one of the surfer kids who was doing the valet, I said, "Hey, the, I said I pointed back inside because you look inside. See that guy sitting at the table? See that couple sitting at the table? What what car did they come in?" And he's like, "Oh yeah, they came in that big old Hummer over there. It was some big Hummer, you know, thing and tricked out or whatever." And I'm like, <laughs> "Yep, that was definitely Joe Walsh. All right? Yeah, it was cool. like an eighty thousand dollar vehicle. <laughs> so yeah, that's my brush with Joe Walsh." Okay. I have a Forget the price 
So let's get to your Christian music uh, career. What are some of your better memories of that? The cool thing was I got to tell the story of how I, um, you know, got my relationship right with God to Rich Mullins Band. The Ragamuffins. Yeah. I went to work for this Christian radio station in PA, and uh, they, the Jesus record came out, mm -hmm. um, which I just listened to the other day, actually. The second side where Rich is doing it on the tape, you know, and they right. put that. It's just amazing. Yeah, for folks listening, if you go to the Aaron Smith interview, we talk about that particular yeah. record. Yeah. Um, so we did the tour. They did a tour. A brief, I don't know how long the tour run was, but they did a tour. Mm -hmm. And um, so Jimmy Abegg, you know, Rick Elias, I mean, all those guys are up there, you know, singing Rich's songs. And here I am, you know, two years prior, just lost. And and so to be a part of the station that promoted that tour and then to meet those guys, you know, pre-show or post-show or whatever, because, you know, we promoted the show and, and they hung out with us and, and stuff and it's to tell them the impact and they said yeah we're you know we're, we hear that all the time so that that was cool you know i've uh, been really fortunate in my career to have um spent time with almost everybody i've had good relationships with every artist that comes through good great relationships with managers promoters there was a time when i worked in kansas because i worked in kansas for eight and a half years too at the station we had a show with Casting Crowns, and I set up a, uh, you know, I like to I like to treat people well. And if, if somebody's listening and they're in the radio, Christian radio, or they're at a station, or they're a promoter, whatever you are, any kind of support staff, any kind of logistics, I liked, and I still do, to treat the artists really well. Because despite what you might think, they give up so much to come do tours, to come do concerts, to come do shows. I mean, picture yourself having a regular life and having to go play a guitar somewhere because you're under contract, you know, mm -hmm. because you have a hit record. You have to leave your normal daily life. You know, you miss your kids getting on off the school bus, but whatever it is, mm -hmm. you know. So I, I would always give my very best. I would give them everything I could. You know, make sure they had the right food, make sure they were staying in a good place. If there was somewhere they wanted to go or they were in town, I took them there. And uh, one time, I set up a thing with uh, Mark Hall from Casting Crowns, a singer, and uh, we took him and his three kids horseback riding. And they had never been on a horse before. Never. <laughs> ever. Ever. And that was the coolest thing uh, for me to be a part of that, because... Uh, they had a few hours, and you know, so we did it like midday. It was ungodly hot uh, for some reason, which, well, it's Western Kansas and windy, which is all it is. But I just remember being able to do that, give that gift to him as a dad while he's on the road. They took their kids with them, you know, some, some shows, they homeschooled them or whatever. Mm -hmm. They had a nanny with them too, but because Mark's wife, Melanie, is their manager, you know. But to be able to, for me to be able to help him. Do normal something normal for his yeah. kids as a dad while he's out on tour was a big deal to me. I feel like egotistical when I talk. I'm real good friends with Danny Goki. We love each other. He's he's a good dude. Danny has been uh, so so kind to me. It's good. I mean, if you love people well, if you treat people well throughout your life, they love you back well. You know, and I've and I'm out of radio now. I still do voice work for people, but um, you know, I'm a full time real estate guy and. You know, radio, a lot of times, even, you know, Christian music, mainstream music, whatever, is a 
what can you do for me kind of industry. Sure. You know, and if I'm a program director or a music director, you know, I can play your songs on the radio. I'm the guy who's the decision maker, you know, so they cater to you. I took hundreds of, you know, junkets or trips or promo trips, you know. That's why I ended up in Nashville, you know, because uh, for 20 years of doing Christian radio, I built great community and relationships with people. So like Chris Hauser, right. you know, we're buds, uh-huh. you know, and, and I'm not in radio anymore, but we're still buds. Uh-huh. You know, all these people, Danny Gokey, Ryan Stevenson, you know, Peter Furler, you know. Uh, so they have nothing to gain to be your friend anymore. Yeah, I mean, nothing to gain, but we're still friends. We still have community. We're on each other, right. you know, and we have good relationships, you know. This is a new day. Everything bursting with My favorite time period of Christian popular music was in the 1980s and early 90s when most of the songs, at least by my recollection, were written about personal faith and experience. I just found more edification in it than the full-on praise and worship music that was to dominate in the aughts up until today. I figured since Bill had seen up close the changes in the genre, he'd have something to say about its evolution labeling, shakeups, artist crossovers, and everything else related. You know, I think I think it's all praise music. I mean, it always has been. We just put labels on it. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a little bit different than the normal person, too, because I think that even people who are ACDC, Led Zeppelin, they might not be walking with Jesus, or they might not have a relationship with Jesus. But I believe the Bible, and then it says in there, make a joyful noise, or God created, you know, let there be sound and let there be music. And so I believe all those artists, even without knowing it, everybody's giving praise back to God for the ability to create, you know, they're making these songs that are art, right. you know, and it's amazing. However, you know, we're human and our human minds, we put labels on things. And that's why some bands, you know, over the course of the career, you know, like a Switchfoot or, you know, some bands have made the mistake and come out, uh, Jars of Clay, you know, have come out and said, well, we don't want to be classified as a Christian band, you know, because, and and people have taken that wrong. And I don't think those groups were prepared for that backlash, you know, because as, you know, as Christians, we tend to put labels on things and limitations on things. And we tend to put things, in, we like things in neat little boxes. Mm-hmm. And when it's not neat, we say, well, that can't be from God. That can't be from Jesus. Right. But I know Jesus hung out with all the people who weren't neat. And he hangs out with the neat people too. Yeah. You know, the people got together. So I think it's all praise. Um, what I do think happened was some consultants, some people who, you know, were in charge of music directors, some consultants, started telling some of the top stations you know, if you want to reach more people, we can do studies and uh, we can do research to see who your listeners are and we can go after them. And what happened was it got really successful and they really fine-tuned that dial in to that one core demographic. And they discovered what, you know, some people will say in consultant land, uh, Becky oh. or Julie or like a Jane Doe kind Susie, of thing. You know, there's a big name in, in consulting circles, and they call her Becky. Uh-huh. And what is Becky like? You know, the soccer mom was 2.3 kids, you know, <laughs> driving their kids back and forth to school every day. You know, she's the core supporter. She drives the family. She says to her husband, hey, I want to support this station at $30 a month. Uh-huh. So, you know, dialed it in to Becky or Julie or Susie or whatever to call her. And then... So some of the other music got pushed aside because of that dialing in. And I still think there, 
gosh, there's if you go on some of the streaming platforms today, you can discover so much music that you don't even know exists. Right. Um, and in a way, Christian radio, per se, has created its own monster. Mm-hmm. And they've kind of backed themselves into a corner a little bit because um, it's really hard right now for them to think about expanding their playlists because there are so many other options. You know, Christian radio didn't didn't know that technology was going to change the way that it did. Mm-hmm. They thought that it was always going to be this way, you know, and that was going to happen. They didn't know that there was going to be instant on-demand access to any type of music from any genre, anytime you wanted it, 24-7, 365. Christian radio didn't know that. Right. So they kind of backed themselves into a corner a little bit, and they created this one format, mm-hmm. uh, adult contemporary, hot AC, whatever you call it. So they're servicing that one listener. I do see some, you know, some... Changes. I mean, stations are having different streaming platforms, you know, and some stations are taking risks in bigger cities, um, you know, with different format streams, HD1, HD2, or, you know, in some cases in Houston or, or St. Louis, uh, NJAN or in Houston or Joy or Hot 105.1, I think, or 105.9. Boost, that's what it's called, Boost in St. Louis. Um, they're, they're taking chances of more urban types of music. So, I don't mean to keep harping on this, but... The That's artists that you're friends with, yeah, are they frustrated because they have to write a worship song for it to be a single, or are they, are they saying, okay, we will have these singles that are going to be worship songs, but on the album, if those are still a thing, you know, we're going to put our uh, other songs that we, you know, maybe a little more edgy or, or a little bit off the. the sure, record. they're frustrated to a degree, and I hear that a lot. But the ones who are really mature don't care mm-hmm. because God spoke through a donkey, right? You know. So somehow it all works and and the people who need to hear the song get to hear the song. But it's harder because you have to keep writing that same type of song over and over and you lose your creative freedom, you know, somewhat. Right. I guess as with any genre of music that you there's that you have to make a living. Yeah. Or sorry, I take it back. If you want to make a living, you have to deliver something that's expected. Yeah, you do. But if you want to write something Maybe it's true to you. Maybe people aren't going to like it, and that's that, that's their choice, and that's your choice, and you know. That's why I say to any artist starting out today, keep your publishing. If you sign a deal with somebody, great, but keep your publishing. Keep your publishing. Don't give. Don't sign your publishing rights over to the label because it still gives you creative freedom to write songs. Okay, that you can put on other platforms or even other people could use. You know, Brandon Heath writes a ton of country songs. Dave Barnes writes a ton of country songs. You know, they might not have hits on Christian radio right now, but they're writing for other people. Hannah Kerr's brother, who plays guitar with her on tour, he he's written like 10 or 20 number one country songs. You know, nobody knows that. You know, but his creative, you know, because he's kept his publishing, because these guys have kept their publishing, because they've been adamant about keeping their publishing, they can still feed their stream of creativity, uh-huh. you know, because they've kept their publishing. I'm not out there every day in the trenches, you know, as a Christian artist, so I don't know exactly what they're going through. But the mature ones, the ones you know, I do come across who are like, that doesn't matter to me, you know, this is where I'm at for this platform right now. 
And then people who step away from it too and go back to being just a worship leader or just a worship leader. Mm-hmm. You know, that, there's a label. <laughs> just a worship leader. Come on. He's not, they're not just a worship leader. They're in charge of bringing people into the presence of God on Sunday morning, Wednesday morning, Sunday night, Saturday night, Tuesday night, whenever it is. Yeah. And they're not just a worship leader, you know. So we put all these labels on things and, and um, you know, we don't realize God's got a bigger p- picture and with our human mind we can't necessarily understand it. I do like the fact that um, there's more music now than there's ever been. And there's more access to that music than there's ever been. So Christian radio might struggle. It's not for me to decide. I, I want those stations to, to be blessed enough that they can um, service everyone. Radio is still the most, the most popular streaming device. It is still bigger than Spotify. It's still bigger than Amazon Music. It's still bigger than than Pandora. You know, it's still bigger than Apple Music. It's still bigger. The gap is less, but it's still bigger. People still listen to the radio. Last question. If uh, you were to choose a song for your funeral, what would it be and why? You two, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Third verse specifically. Um, I believe all the colors will bleed into one. Uh, that line in that song. And I've been a lot of places. I know Bono, The Edge, uh, Adam Clayton, Larry Mullen Jr. have all been a lot of places. They've been everywhere. They've been way more places than I've been. But that song from the Joshua Tree album, which I actually was fortunate enough to see that tour a couple of years ago. And the 30th anniversary, uh, and um, 2016, and I took my son with me, and he was 26 at the time, or 25. I saw it at Lincoln Financial Field in Philadelphia. Mind-blowing. They did the whole album, you know, from start to finish, and then they did some other stuff, too. But that song speaks about the God-shaped hole in all of us, you know, no matter what. I still haven't found what I'm looking for, you know, and we're not going to find that until we, we go home. You know, there's always going to be a God-shaped hole. Yeah, the, the restlessness. The restlessness. Mm-hmm. And I can I can say that. I mean, a lot of people can say that. You know, but I've been to some really beautiful places. I've been so blessed to, you know, like I, I swam in the Florida Keys uh, and snorkeled and scuba. There's a statue of Jesus under the water off Ila Morada in the Florida Keys that you can swim down and see. It's under the water. It's, it's freaking amazing. Mm-hmm. There's lots of tourists there, snorkel boats all over the place. But there's... I mean, it's the sun is shining down. There's fish, all these colors, and a statue of Jesus underwater. It's hard to beat seeing something like that. <laughs> I've been to Guatemala, Lake Atitlan in Guatemala, out an hour and a half, two hours outside of Guatemala City. It's a lake surrounded by five volcanoes, two of them still active, and little towns. I've been close to the top of one of those volcanoes. Uh, it's actually the, the the profile pic on my Facebook page. And uh, I was up there by myself, quiet, and I took a picture and I I thought to myself, I actually had the thought to myself, this is beautiful, but is this all there is? You know, there's got to be more. So that song means a lot to me because that song talks about no matter what you've gone through in life, no matter what you've achieved, no matter who you think you are, every single person on the planet, if they're honest with themselves, 
they will tell you they still haven't found what they're looking for. They will tell you if they're truly honest with themselves and with you, they will tell you what that they still haven't found what they're looking for. And some of them don't speak it out loud verbally. They live it with their actions. You can have all the money in the world. You can live to be 110. You can have you know, success, fame, fortune, whatever you want to call it. But all those people, when they're alone in a room or they're alone somewhere, I bet all the money I'll ever earn in my life that they would say, gosh, there's got to be more. There's joy in the journey, not the destination. Yeah. Yeah, because you get like this buyer's remorse once you arrive. Right. So you got to have, you got to live every day. Right. And you got to make the most of every day. And you got to have joy in the journey because you're not guaranteed another breath, another heartbeat, another day. You can't focus on the destination because guess what? When you get there, when you're on the mountaintop uh, surrounded by a vol- you know, five volcanoes and a volcanic lake, you want to go to the next place to find God. When you're snorkeling in the Caribbean, you want to go to the next place to find God. Uh, so you got to find joy in the journey. And uh took me a long time to figure that one out. And I'm still figuring it out. Man. I fight it every day. Sure. I fight it every day. Oh, I don't got to get there. I got to I gotta be here. No, it's true. And, and don't give up pursuing it. Don't, yeah, don't give up. Because some people do. So, yeah, that's my song. Well, hey, thanks for coming on. Thank you. If today's subject matter was of interest to you, you might give a listen to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 161, with Aaron A. Train Smith, drummer who pounded the skins with Rich Mullins, the 77s, the Temptations, and a bunch of other legends. Also, 151 is a good one, featuring CCM radio promoter Chris Hauser talking all about his many years working with legend Randy Stonehill. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Whoa. Bye-bye.